is episode 009 with Guy McPherson on Ancestral Health Radio. Learn to align your genetic makeup for peak health, fitness, and longevity with actionable how-to advice from today's leaders in nutrition, movement, and lifestyle. Join me, your host, James Kevin Broderick, as we bridge the divide between modern technology and our inherent ancestral wisdom. Let's take a walk on the wild side. How long do we as a species have left on this planet? It may be a lot less time than you may have previously thought, according to today's guest. Guy McPherson, the leading authority on abrupt climate change and near-term human extinction, predicts that we, collectively, have reached the tipping point that has led the human population careening towards the sixth great extinction of our planet. So what are we to do? Guy's answers range from mailing your local congressman to dynamiting cell phone towers, all in the name of dismantling industrial civilization, which Guy believes is the root cause of many of our modern ills, including, but not limited to, abrupt climate change. Love it or hate it, in today's episode you'll learn why we should take action but be unattached to the outcome, why we as a species are driving ourselves towards a sixth mass extinction, the solutions we can take on a local level to extend our time here on Earth, and much, much more. Guy McPherson is an energetic speaker and talented moderator. Professor Emeritus at the University of Arizona, his classrooms were under surveillance by the United States government no later than 2005. He has been labeled an anarchist and eco-terrorist by senior members of the Obama administration. He readily pleads guilty to the former and probably also to the latter, depending upon how it is defined. McPherson has appeared before countless audiences to speak about the two primary consequences of our fossil fuel addiction, both global climate change and energy decline. Because these phenomena impact every aspect of life on Earth, his talks reach a wide variety of audiences such as universities, associations, nonprofits, and numerous educational and scientific symposia and conferences. Guy Totten conducted research for 20 award-winning years. His scholarly work, which has for many years focused on conservation of biological diversity, has produced more than a dozen books and hundreds of articles. Again, thank you for joining me today on Ancestral Health Radio, Guy. I know we had a little bit um, difficulties earlier recording, but hopefully we can we can move forward and we can we can get this thing done. Thank you, James. The privilege is all mine. Okay, so you know what? I asked a really important question the first time around, or at least one I think that many people are interested in, which is how you would again ask our new president or tell our new president rather exactly what's happening with climate change for someone who doesn't exactly believe that the world is heating up, and in particular due to humans, what exactly would you say to President Trump? Well, Mr. Trump, I believe you're mistaken. I think there's ample evidence in support of the notion of human-driven climate change. And that we have passed the point of no return. We have triggered so many self-reinforcing feedback loops that at this point the situation is out of human hands. So at some at some level, there is little or no opportunity to turn the thing around with respect to climate change. But on the other hand, I have always been a fan of action. I believe that 
action while not being attached to the outcome is important and necessary. So I think we should be trying to do the right thing here. And uh, I'm not entirely sure what that means at the level of governments, but at the very least acknowledging the ample evidence behind anthropogenic climate change is a step in the right direction and continuing to deny it is to continue to deny, deny reality. I don't think that's useful on this topic or any other. And you were mentioning that there are positive and negative feedback loops. It, would you mind going through maybe a couple of the ones that we might be familiar with? Sure. The Consider, for example, water vapor, which is the most abundant greenhouse gas in the atmosphere. And almost all of the water vapor in the atmosphere in, is found in the troposphere. That water vapor serves as a self-reinforcing feedback loop of its own, and Earth's planetary temperature comes into equilibrium with the humidity in the upper troposphere in a matter of days. So, for example, as it heats up, as the planet heats up, more water is evaporated and ends up in the atmosphere. And as more water ends up in the atmosphere, the planet is induced to further heat up because water vapor gas. So it, water vapor, like the other greenhouse gases, holds heat closer to the surface of the Earth than it otherwise would. The, the, the radiation can't escape out of the planetary atmosphere and go back into space, so it's trapped here on Earth. So the more it heats up, the more water vapor ends up in the upper troposphere, and therefore, the more it heats up. That's a classic self-reinforcing feedback loop or so-called positive feedback, although it's not very positive for us right. because it's heating the planet at an exponential rate. Wow, okay. And if this is just one of the many ills that is actually plaguing us today as far as environmental change, I know that you're not big on trying to focus on an outcome. However, you know, us being human, we're always searching for, and I know you have a very, a very unique viewpoint on the word hope. And I would like to think that we do have hope, but maybe you would like to share your perspective on that. Well, I, you know, I think that we, that we ought not be attached to an outcome because I've been involved in a lot of in my life. And I was attached to an outcome, and that attachment only caused and adverse, uh, adversely affected the outcome. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we can all think of personal examples. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm studying so that I get a higher grade, and then, as it turns out, I don't get a higher grade at all. The point is to end up 100% on that example. I don't think we need to be attached to that at home to recognize the good associated with the learning. There was I believe that taking action on scale issues such as air pollution, water pollution, accelerated soil erosion, anthropogenic climate change, and many, many others. I think that's a great idea, but I'm not terribly attached to the outcome because I've come to recognize this set of living arrangements, civilization, the, the growing and, and distribution of grains, of food. I've come to view this whole process of civilization as a 
uh, an omnicidal heat engine. It, it basically kills everything that gets in its path, driving to extinction 150 to 200 species a day. So, so I try to slow that down, but I'm not too attached to the outcome. It, it now has become clear that that even though civilization is is a life-destroying planetary force that that I can't stop of my own volition. Mm-hmm. It's clear now that if we stop it, global heating occurs so rapidly and to such a high level that I can't imagine there will be a tree on the planet, much less a human being, in a short period of time. So I'm not terribly attached to the outcome of trying to act against anthropogenic climate change, but I still think acting against anthropogenic trans- climate change, trying to slow down the overheating of an overheated planet is a good idea. Mm-hmm. I'm not hopeful about that outcome. I, I, I think that, that hope is wishing for an outcome over which we have no agency. I've given up on hope. I instead take the action because it's the right thing to do, not because there's some sort of hope or fear or, or projection into the future about what that future might look like. Well, at least I read in your bio that it says that you're an anarchist and that in some circles you might be known as an eco-terrorist, and maybe to your own accord, depending on how it's defined. Could you define that for us? Well, yeah, let's start with anarchism. Um, Anarchism, and I'm going to paraphrase Edward Abbey here, the desert anarchist and longtime writer from Tucson, Arizona, who died uh, March 14th, 1989. Today would have been his 90th birthday. And, and he wrote something like, anarchism is not a romantic fable, but rather the hard-headed realization based on 5,000 years of experience that we cannot entrust the management of our lives to priests, politicians, and so on, including county commissioners, which is the last uh, individually put on that list. And so anarchism is merely taking responsibility for oneself and for one's neighbors instead of capitulating to a form of government to take responsibility for my life. For me, that's huge. For me, me taking responsibility for my actions makes a lot more sense than the federal government being put in charge of anything, because I think we all can point to a few examples of government action gone awry, like Mm -hmm. every military action in my lifetime, for example. Um, So... So, so that's that's where that's where I draw the line on anarchism. Now, with respect to eco-terrorism, I suspect what the senior members of the Obama administration mean, mm-hmm. and and these are secretary-level positions. What they mean is by when they say eco-terrorist is that I'm willing to um, spike a tree to prevent the tree from being cut down. That I'm willing to take direct action against the growth of civilization in support of the living planet. And that that certainly is true. I am more than willing to take actions against the continued cancer-like growth of civilization, of cities, transforming the planet from a vibrant, living, healthy land base into what we have come to recognize as bricks and mortar and boards and nails right. we spend a majority of our time. Yeah, it's it seems to me that we've essentially created a, a human zoo for ourselves. 
And, you know, for me, I, I'm, you know, I created this podcast to see if we couldn't uh, find a solution or if there was something. I know that, you know, again, that falls into, um, you know, looking towards an outcome. However, I, I know that that's, that's what people want to hear. They, they want to be given something that at least they can work towards. And I believe this group of people, the ones within the ancestral health scene and specifically the ones, and at the, the heart of what I'm doing is something, I'm not sure if you've heard of the term rewilding, which is essentially undoing the process of domestication. Yes, I, I'm, a, I'm a big fan of rewilding. I'm very familiar with that. Okay, and, you know, we were talking— conservation biologists, it was conservation biologists like me who started that effort and who continue to push the cause. And I'm so happy that you're around to do that. And, you know, if it wasn't for people like you, then, you know, I wouldn't have a path to follow because I find myself lost within the world or culture that I was brought up in. And going back to that, what made us so successful exactly as humans pre, um, I guess you could say pre-agriculture, pre-civilization? Sure. You know, Daniel Quinn, the longtime writer, author of the award-winning book Ishmael, and many other books to follow, uh, defined civilization as they lock up the food. Mm -hmm. It's that simple. Once we start growing grains, that allows us to store and ultimately distribute the grains. And that's the very essence of civilization. Once we, once we capitulate to storing food, we, for all purposes, have taken a path that is very different from the one that occurred for the first two to five million years of the human experience, depending upon how you want to define human experience. If you want to go back to Homo erectus, the tool-using humans, and we're talking a couple million years ago, if you want to go back to our earlier ancestors that we would still recognize as human, then we can go back to five or six million years. Mm -hmm. And so... So for, for at least a couple million years, we had organisms looking a lot like us who didn't trash the planet. It's only been within the last few thousand years that we've been completely out of touch with the living planet and acted very, very differently. And I would argue, as Daniel Quinn does, that, that the trigger there was the ability to control the food control the storing and distribution of food, and therefore control the people. Once you start controlling people, attributes like sociopathy come into play. Sociopathy never came into play with indigenous peoples because there was a small enough group of people, Dunbar's number, fewer than, say, 200 people. Mm -hmm. there, there was few enough people that everybody could keep track of everybody else. Nobody could become a sociopath. If you did, if you tried to be what Daniel Quinn calls a taker, somebody who takes from other people instead of leaving more than they came with, once you become a taker, everybody recognizes you as a taker and you get banned by the group. There's no quicker path to death from than, than being banned by your group. You're, you're then an outsider. You depend upon all those people in your community, just like we depend upon many people in our communities for our own survival. Right. If you're no the one, band member, you're cast out, you're not going to make it. Right, yeah, nobody survives on their own. Right, it, it takes a really, really rare individual to even want to do that, much less somebody who could survive. In thinking about that, and thinking about community, 
I'm in contact with a few individuals who are trying to create a new paradigm, trying to create something that is undomesticated as possible. However, we're not trying to go from one extreme to another. They're trying to create something that we call a transition culture. And I guess, you know, something that I'm not very familiar with or a person's work that I'm not very familiar with that you speak about, I forget his name at the moment, but you were telling me that it's transition towns. Yes, Rob Hopkins um, from the UK, um, who who wrote the book on the subject and was one of the founders of the transition movement. And the, the transition movement basically casts future humans living in a, a fossil fuel depleted world in light of climate change mm-hmm. or overall global warming. And so that, that and, and, and I followed those principles for a long time. I, I left active life at the University of Arizona, skipped out of the monetary system, um, established a homestead in the wilds of New Mexico and started growing a, a lot of my own food and storing the food and, and becoming part of that community. And, and that was the path that was, and, and I still believe it's a viable path to follow for people who want to persist beyond the industrial age. It has become clear based on the concept of global dimming or the aerosol masking effect uh, mm. over the course of the last five years or so that humans probably will not persist as a result of taking those actions. But as I've said repeatedly, I'm a fan of taking the actions while remaining unattached to the outcome of those actions because we can't predict with certainty what the future holds. So let's do the right thing regardless. Right. And so doing the right thing in taking action in the light of this new situation, say we only have a little bit to go, what what would the right actions be? If, if we're to move forward and we want to live harmoniously with the other life forms present on this earth, how would you have us do that? Well, cities are the symbol of civilization and are, I believe, the exact opposite of the way we could and should be living. Mm-hmm. Cities represent the apex of imperialism, of, of creating an empire that depends upon extracting materials from other places to support a, a relatively small part of the population. So that's how we get to cities, is by mining so-called resources or, or materials, finite materials particularly, from other places, taking them from other countries almost always by force, and also extracting materials from the living planet, destroying the habitat for non-human species, along the way to creating those cities. So, you know, people tell me all the time that I live in the city and and in a small apartment, therefore my environmental or ecological footprint is very small. And you live out there on 2.7 acres, and so you're taking a lot of, a lot of space, whereas I'm not. Mm-hmm. Well, not so. But living in that small apartment in the city, you actually eat and I suspect most people do, then you still are are requiring somewhere between three and six acres to grow the food to support you living in the small apartment in the city. 
So if you're if you're a human being embedded in in industrial civilization and depending upon industrial agriculture, then it doesn't really matter where you eat on the food chain. Well, it does matter where you eat on the food chain. That's what gets you somewhere between three and six acres that you're exploiting for your use. So there's 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 no escape here. There are, there are no parties that are not quote, guilty. But on the other hand, we were all born into this. We didn't decide when and where we were going to be born. If we were to make decisions at this point about where we're going to live, I would say out of cities, I would say to the small towns, to the villages, to the rural areas like uh, the, the homestead that I established in rural New Mexico are far more environmentally suitable than living in cities. And not only do they have the benefit of allowing a person to grow a significant amount of their own healthy food, they also allow you to realize where your water comes from. Mm -hmm. What are the consequences of living like you do? And engaging with the natural world in ways that, for the most part, many of us have put off for far too long. So once you're out there living on your own one acre or five acres or 10 acres, whether it's shared with, with other people or not, you know what happened to me when I moved from Tucson, Arizona and into the wilds of New Mexico is that almost immediately I stopped going camping. <laughs> there was no need. Yeah. When I lived in the city, I wanted to go camping every weekend. Now I find myself surrounded by nature all the time. I want to go camping. I just walk outside. I'm immersed in the natural world, and I can breathe that air, and it just feels different to me. So there's all kinds of good reasons based on your environmental footprint or not to live outside what we what we have all come to know and most of us to love as the system. Right. So, and that, that goes beyond, well beyond your environmental footprint to how emotionally and psychologically healthy you are. In order to make that type of transition, there are quite a bit of things that we as humans have just simply lost as far as lineage or heritage or ancestry or even tradition. And some of those things that we need to learn are basic skills that are built into our DNA. Isn't that correct? Things like hunting and foraging, learning how to navigate by the stars. I mean, these simple principles that we've just lost or uh, what one of my recent guests have actually spoken about is we've essentially just outsourced a lot of these things to modern technology, which is essentially just giving us or giving our ancestral power away to other things. Isn't that correct? Absolutely. No question about it. You know, it wasn't that long ago that every person knew in their being from the time they were four or five years old how to live in the world, how to milk a cow, how to pound a nail, how to build a simple structure, how to fix plumbing by the time they were 15 years old, mm -hmm. how to hang a door, all those things that now we outsource, that, that we just work on making enough money that we don't have to do those unseemly tasks that make us perspire and, and get dirt on our fingers and allow us to let somebody else do that. These, this, is, this is not part of being an entire whole holistic human being. Mm 
Mm-hmm. I think I think holistic human beings are are the ones that are comfortable being outdoors, are comfortable hanging a door and fixing a toilet. And and I wasn't that guy not very long ago. Don't get me wrong. I was as guilty as the next person. I went to sell my house in Tucson, Arizona to move to the country in New Mexico. And I tried to fix my leaky toilet and it ended up costing me $500 because I broke everything. And it was just a simple fix. Right. You know, that had I called the plumber in the first place, it would have been, you know, 40 bucks or whatever. And had I looked online, I could have fixed it myself in 10 minutes. But no, I had to, I had to out hubris myself and destroy the whole thing. Right. And, you know, and it just wasn't that long ago. I look even back at my at my dad when I was growing up, um, and and he was in his his twenties and thirties, and he could do all these simple things. And and now nobody can do those simple things anymore because we've all been distracted away from from all those things. Much less find the northern star at night, you know. Mm-hmm. Much less be able to navigate our way back home. Um, I, I love the way Ernest Hemingway did it when he moved to Key West, Florida. He bought a property right next to the lighthouse. He knew he was going to be drunk every night, so <laughs> he just aimed for the lighthouse when he was when he left the bar. Smart man, smart <laughs> See, man. <laughs> that's that's thinking all the time, right there. You know, it was funny because we were just—I was just on a, another interview with a gentleman named Scott Carney who just wrote a book called "What Doesn't Kill Us." He has a story within the book, and he's talking about. Islanders who actually knew how to use wayfaring or specifically something called the Dilep or which was almost like an ocean highway in order to find their way through the sea without, you know, any modern technology whatsoever. And there's very few people on this earth that actually know how to use that today. Even if we were to try and learn some of these ancestral skills, there are some that have been completely lost due to the destruction that we've created for ourselves. And I'm wondering, what would be some of the practical steps, you know, granted in the time that we do have, or maybe from your own perspective, maybe we can go back to, to what you were doing and how, how you were living in New Mexico. What were some of the biggest challenges that you found trying to make this transition for yourself? Well, um, you have to bear in mind that when I started that project, I could barely distinguish between a zucchini and a screwdriver. Okay. I didn't know how to grow things. I was a lifelong academic. You know, I spend my time learning how to conduct research and how to teach in a classroom. And that was my whole life until I was 47 years old. And then I I break my toilet and I go out there into into the world and I didn't know anything. So I had to learn everything. Mm -hmm. And... And I'm pretty stubborn about the whole thing, so I didn't learn easily. I broke my ribs a couple of times. I was constantly oh, no. falling all over myself and nearly sawing off fingers and toes. And, and I, I, can hurt, I can't even begin to tell you what were the hazards and difficulties I learned along the way because they were so numerous. Mm-hmm. I, you know, we've all heard this expression, we learn from our mistakes. I started telling people I made mine thousands of times just so I'd drive the message home. And I feel the same way. I do. I learn that way as well, too. It doesn't take one mistake. It takes multitude of mistakes for me to learn. And, right. you know, there's a, there's a documentary out, actually. Um, it, I think it's called The Simple Life. It's on Netflix that I found. And it follows a group of people who are trying to live indigenously off of the land in Australia. And I found it very interesting because they there were members there, and the, people would come and go out of this community. But... At the end of the movie, 
the the biggest problem that I saw that these people had and that, that they believed that they had was just simply living in a sustainable community with each other, basically undoing the 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 barriers that culture had created for them. And, you know, I find that it's it's less the skills, the physical skills that we need to learn. And it's more of the emotional skills that we need to to adapt to these days as far as what our culture has done to us. Do you have anything to say about that? Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. Um, the, the, perhaps the most challenging issue I faced in New Mexico was not how to, how to use a screwdriver, was not how to figure out how to use a circular saw, was not how to grow food, was not how to preserve food, but instead had to do with interpersonal relationships. Mm-hmm. And we, we are we are very, very, almost all of us are very poorly educated very poorly attuned to dealing with other human beings when we get out of the K through 12 indoctrination process in the United States. It's just something we don't do well. There's, there's no focus. There's no educational focus on interpersonal communications. It instead is all about math and linguistics. You know, it's the logical mathematical and the, the, the language kinds of things that are stressed in that system. And we lose a lot. We lose a tremendous amount in our overriding focus on those two or three arenas. And I think that's very unfortunate and is evident every time I try to communicate with people oh, in man. public. I'm and, sure. And, and that's been going on for years. Yeah, and do you think maybe that has to do with the number or population density that we have? Because when I think about it, in indigenous tribes, like you said, maybe there were 200 people that you had to deal with your entire life, maybe 300 maximum. And within that, these were people that were with you every single day. They were your essential essential family, your tribe, your kinsmen. And, you know, I, I realized that with so many people, and I had just actually got done reading a book called Sapiens, which is absolutely wonderful. I'm sure you've heard of it. Again, one of the biggest problems I see there is, again, dealing with other people simply because they're strangers. I see that people today in the modern world are very, they're just not compassionate individuals. A lot of people that I come in contact with are always in a rush. They need to get somewhere now. And, you know, they care very selfishly for themselves. And that's a barrier that I'm trying to overcome myself is how do I treat others with respect and myself with respect? But how do I do that within like a tribal context? How do I do that on an emotional level with people? And and people accept that, you know, because I've even noticed I go out for a hug to give somebody a hug and, you know, they're embracing me back, but their embrace is like a little pat on the back. You know what I mean? Where I right. fully embrace someone. I want them to feel the gratitude that I have for them being on this planet or for whatever reason. And, you know, I find it's very hard and very awkward for people to to show their appreciation, their gratitude and compassion for other other people. I think it goes a step beyond that. I think this culture drives us away from that kind of intimacy. and And so what we get now is is man hugs to try to make it appear that we aren't mm-hmm. gay, right? We don't want to hug somebody intently. We don't want to have an, uh, an, an intimate experience with somebody because intimacy has come to be equated with sex and 
we, we certainly can't have that. And so we slap people on the back. We don't hug them. We don't spend time looking deeply into somebody, somebody's eyes. We make eye contact and we look away. We, we do a handshake. We, we do all these, these superficial activities. These, we, we, we take these minor actions instead of immersing ourselves in what it means to be a human being. And, and it's tragic. It's horrible. Yeah, we're we're no longer celebrating each other is what it feels like. We're celebrating individual moments that, oh, we just got a new pair of shoes. Oh, we bought a trip to go to Florida, for example, you know, from California, whatever. Or at least it's it's harder for myself to find individuals that I can connect with on a deep personal level. And it's funny because I, I live in the Bay Area right now, and I came from Southern California. And in Southern California, it is very... Um, I don't want to offend too many people, but you know what? I'm just going to go out and say it. It's very superficial down there. You know what I'm saying? It's a lot about yep. image, and it's a lot about what you have. And for me, that's that's exactly the ideal that I wanted to escape, you know? And coming up here, I find that having more open space, more green, It's I don't know if it's, if that's what it is, but the people up here just seem to be more open. They're They're down to have more intellectual conversations about topics that are just more meaningful, I think, to us as a species. And and I find it it's easier for people to adapt up here for some reason. I don't know if that has to do with with the location of where they are and the way society is run in Southern California. But for me, you know, I had to escape that because I could feel that on a day-to-day level. And for me, I need to be connecting with somebody. I'm I don't know, I'm I guess you could consider myself an extrovert, but I need to be connecting with people on a very very intimate level. And it's very important to me that I do that. And this is one of the, the missing pieces for myself that I'm trying to work in is how do I, how do I reconnect with who I am as a person? And how do I develop relationships with these three areas? These are kind of the the areas that I find with my food, my community, and my land. What type of relationships can I develop through those, those three arenas? And for me, I found the community aspect to be the hardest. And I think it's more than that, too. I think it's okay. cultural, that, that by, by following this path for such a long period of time, we have become indoctrinated into this culture that lacks intimacy, that uh, does not reward intimacy. And so, uh, of course, you're not going to take an intimate approach with people. You're not going to try to have a, a deeply meaningful conversation with somebody if you're not going to receive financial reward for it because the, the, the metric of success in this society is money. Mm-hmm. So we're not surprisingly, we've become all about the money. And, and, you know, when you, when you get older, like, like I am at this point, you realize that money is just this superficial thing that facilitates your ability to do certain things, mm-hmm. but it ain't, it ain't the measure of success. I thought it was. Right. Yeah, no. And I, you know how I view money is simply as a tool. You know, I, I see it as a, just an aspect to, to hopefully at least get my message across to other people, your message across to other people. And I'm trying to find the mentors like yourself that can help shed light on our situation, our predicament and where we're at as a species. Because, you know, as you say, your predictions look very grim. Say we try to do this transition town. We, we try to become a part of a transition community. I mean, is it is it just completely pointless to do that? It's not, right? Because maybe this won't happen. Maybe enough people will take charge to do it, or is it... I mean, I'm just trying to see, is that it? Well, yes. We've Most of us have known that since we were about 11 years old. 
that, that birth is a sexually transmitted disease that is proven fatal in every case. <laughs> Very we true. Don't yep. Right? I mean, mm-hmm. that's, that's the whole story as far as I'm concerned at this point in my life is that life is short. And, and I want to do, I want to pursue right action. I want to be compassionate with people. I want to try to be kind to people. And sometimes I fail. Very frequently I fail. Mm-hmm. I know that. Other people certainly know it about me because I failed with them. And, and that doesn't make me give up the pursuit. It does make me more aware, more conscious of my own actions when I am being the jerk who pushes somebody out of the way to get to that last Xbox on the shelf or whatever. You know, that I, I recognize that how, how, how profoundly we are driven by material possessions in this culture. And, and I try not to be that guy. Am I successful all the time? No, of course not. But we try. We fail. We're humans. It's tragic. We don't have long. Let's act like we don't have long. You know, John Ralston Saul in his book, Voltaire's Bastards, wrote, Never has failure been so ardently defended as success. That was hmm. 1992, 1992. And I feel that way about the entire culture. The culture is so driven by money. Never has failure been so ardently defended as success. It's hard for me to imagine that because I already um, I already view myself as a fairly alternative individual as it is. And, you know, I see through the podcast that it is making an impact and slowly it's helping people open their eyes, open their eyes, open their ears and, and, and see things in a different light. For me, it again, it goes back to that transition culture. But if the world is going to continue with its off-gassing and its abrupt climate change, I'm looking for the answers. I'm, I'm looking for the things that we can do. So if we, if we could distill just a few of the things, we all want to live in this transition culture. We make this transition culture happen. And maybe not for all of us, because I understand that obviously there, you know, there's 7 billion people on this planet, close to 8, right? We can't all just go start foraging and hunting the way that we used to, right? We've already altered the landscape far too dramatically. Last mass extinction event was about 56 million years ago. 56 million. Before before there was anything resembling a human on the planet. There have only been five. We're now in the midst of the sixth, the sixth mass extinction event in planetary history. Those are extinction events that take out more than 50% of the species on the planet. So okay. they're big. There, there mm-hmm. have been about 20 or so lesser extinction events that take out 10% or 20% okay. of the species on the planet. Um, but, but you know, this is, this is huge. We're in the midst of the sixth mass extinction event on planet Earth. It's proceeding more rapidly and taking out more species than any other. The closest parallel is called the Great Dying 252.2 million years ago when more than 90% of the species on the planet were obliterated in a relatively short period of time, somewhere between 880, degree, 880 years and about 19,000 years. Geologically, that's a pretty short period of time. We're, we're going way faster than that at this point, um, at, at least in order of magnitude faster in terms of the rate of extinction. So it's horrible. Um, there, there are ways, there are actions we can take as individuals and communities to reduce our impact mm-hmm. and and I'm a fan right. and, and and I'm also a fan of 
of not blaming and not shaming and not guilting people into actions that that um, seem irrelevant because that that gets into the compassion issue I was talking about before. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's, it's not my fault I showed up on February 29th, 1960 in northern Idaho with the parents I had. And, and that I that I was part of this culture, I didn't get to vote for that. Uh, you know, if, if I had tried to become indigenous at the time, I, I would have died almost immediately. And, and if I tried to do it now, it would take about a week. Yeah, yeah, I, so, I, so, I'm so with there you are on that. Actions, you know, there are actions we can take and actions that are absolutely ludicrous that, that I wouldn't encourage anybody to take because it is so far outside of our range of experience. On the other hand, what better time than at the end to illustrate what kind of human being each of us can be. If, if we're the last generation of human beings, and I strongly suspect that's the case, then let's act like the decent people we can, that we are capable of being, on our way out the door. Why would we not do that? Is there any action that we could possibly take that, that might extend this longer than, than, let's say, I mean... 20, 50, 60 years down the line? Oh, yeah. I, you know, it's pretty clear that every one of the contributors to the ongoing disaster that is the sixth mass extinction, every one of them is rooted in industrial civilization. Mm-hmm. Whether it's accelerated erosion or water pollution or air pollution or the extinction rate of 150 to 200 species a day, according to the United Nations report from August of 2010, whether, you know, we can go on and on, whether it's deforestation, whether it's overhunting, whether it's overharvesting of the oceans, you know, it's all rooted in one single cause, and that's industrial civilization. So it seems to me that terminating industrial civilization is the way to go. Do I recognize the impacts for humans? Mm-hmm. Of course. You know, that almost certainly drives us to extinction even faster than we would otherwise go. And not only that, it um, it causes enormous suffering for almost all of the 7.5 billion people on the planet. Certainly at least 6 billion of those people. So... If, if I had the button in front of me that says terminate industrial civilization, knowing it's going to going to destroy habitat for humans on the planet in, in in a matter of days or weeks, would I push that button? I don't know. But I know that continuing what we're doing today is absolute abject omnicide. It's the fastest path to destroying all life on Earth. The Jason group at the Pentagon, which is the, quote, smartest people in the room, We'll have a report out later this year indicating that because of ionizing radiation, because of stripping away of the ozone in the atmosphere, because of industrial civilization, in the near, very near future, Earth will resemble Mars. So that group believes that, there, that this will be a lifeless planet in the not-too-distant future. That's a, that's a bunch of really smart people reaching that conclusion. And I, I say that we can't predict the future with certainty. Let's act accordingly and take direct actions that, that may, in fact, improve the situation so that, so that, in fact, we do have 
anoles next week and next month and next year. Because if we don't, then we'll never have anoles again. Right. So that's the bottom line for me. How would we go about deconstructing the type of culture that we have now with the industrialized complex that's in place? What what are some of the steps that we, you know, the audience that are listening to you right now, what what could we do as an individual on a local level? So many things, really. Um, Dave Foreman wrote a book about it in the 1970s. I can't remember the name of it. Um, Derek Jensen wrote a book, two volumes called In the Game. It came out in, I think, 2008. Um, an online book, free online, um, written by my friend uh, Keith Farnish. is called Underminers. It's at underminers.org. And he and the preceding books go through the many, many steps from small to large, from sending a, a, a letter to your city council member to, to dynamiting the local cell phone tower. Um, he goes through all of that and points out the risks and the potential rewards of each of those steps. So I'm not going to get into all those things other than mentioning that they range from sending a letter to your city council member to taking direct action to bring down cell phone towers. That's very reminiscent of Fight Club. Right, absolutely. And, and there's a, there are a couple of groups actively involved in terminating industrial civilization. There's Deep Green Resistance, inspired by the book um, by Lear Keith, Eric McBeigh, and Derek Jensen also called Deep Green Resistance, and there's also Idle No More, indigenous groups that have banded together to become Idle No More in light of the fact that civilization, largely run by people who look a lot like me, Caucasian men, destroying every aspect of their homes as well. So there are groups out there that people can connect with, and take what's called underground or above-ground action to terminate the omnicidal beast that civilization has become. Do I think that will be effective? It would surprise me. But on the other hand, look at the stakes. Mm -hmm. You know, we're talking about all life on Earth here. It's all or nothing. Yeah. Yeah. So what do we got to lose? Everything. Right. And that, you know, that has been the biggest question for me also doing this is, you know, it's it's hard for me to imagine, even with being able to get thousands of downloads and, you know, being able to get this out there to to a large audience, am I still going to make enough impact so that people do put their money where their mouth is? And, you know, it's it's difficult for me to see that because there are so many people, the, the population density seems to be the biggest issue for me, that there are so many people out there that even if I were to get my own community starting, that I was to get my, my friend Arthur Haynes's community going, you know, how much of an impact would that make? And would that make enough of an impact to, to change society? You know, that's some of the biggest questions I have. And I, I just, you know, it's definitely hard for me to imagine, but I, I can't stop myself from at least trying. Right. You know, Derek Jensen points out that we have the best excuse in the world to not act, to not act out, to not take direct action against industrial civilization. We have the best excuse in the world. You know, you're going to get arrested. You might get thrown in jail. You might get tortured. You might even die early. So we can have the best excuse in the world, he says, or we can have a world. That's (laughs) what the stakes are. 
Right. Maybe you're not going to make any difference. Maybe I'm not making any difference. Maybe none of this will make any difference, and maybe it will. Maybe it will. And that's that's really what it comes down to. And if you're listening to this, just know that that is the most important part because being not being a non-participant is going to get you exactly where you are today. Enslaved within a system that mm-hmm. is driving the to completely lifeless, to being completely lifeless. That's from the Jason Group in the Pentagon. Mm-hmm. This is a reliable source. If we keep going the direction we're headed, we're going to end up there. And there is bad. After listening to this episode, what are a couple steps that you think that we should be taking might help us along this path? Well, I think first and foremost, there is no should. Okay. Um, I, I tried to should people into things for a long, for many, many years. I, I tried to should my students into not having babies, and they all had babies, mm-hmm. making this, making this the the human population problem worse than it already was. So. I think there's a lot of things that people can do. How they feel about them is beyond my ability to control. Mm-hmm. I think the evidence is clear that we are headed for a lifeless planet if we don't take action right now. And by right now, I mean about 50 years ago. <laughs> is it too late? Well, maybe. It's not too late for an individual organism that we preserve habitat for over the course of the next day, the next week, the next month, the next year. Mm-hmm. It's not too late for that. You know, one of, the, one of the problems I see with this culture is that we all want to be the Big Bang. We all want to have this big impact that will, will turn the world on a dime, make it an enormously better place as a result of our actions. So can we do that? Maybe, maybe not. But looking for that big action, that big step that saves the day, Hollywood-like, mm-hmm. um, is not is not nearly as likely as the grinding process of day to day rewilding and improving our little piece of the planet for another day, preserving life on our little corner of the planet for another day, another week, another month, another year. That's hard work. That's hard enough. Let's focus there. If we all do that, if we all focus there, we can make a difference, however small, however large. That's all we got. Right. That's all we got. We don't have a button to push. We don't have a bomb to set off. What we have, the, the listeners of, of this show and you and I, what we have is the ability to influence a relatively small circle of humans and non-humans in our vicinity. So let's do that. So let's let's work together within our bioregion and try to live as harmoniously with the other humans and non-humans that we have with us and that are available to us, correct? Yes, absolutely. Isn't that enough? I mean, that goes beyond how I spent the first 40-some years of my life. Absolutely. Yeah. And I mean, I'm just just scratching the surface myself. I, you know, I've just started my own journey. And, you know, I understand that granted that if we do have a longer time to be on here, I understand that what we're doing is generational. I, we, I know I spoke to you about this earlier, that it, it doesn't come down to just me, but it comes down to uh, teaching our children and our children's children, teaching other people as well, 
perhaps these indigenous lifeways, these ancestral lifeways that put us back into harmony with um, being the levers of this planet, leaving things the- for others, being unselfish and finding alternative ways of um, creating sustainability and doing that for others and other species as well. The seven generations of the Iroquois Confederation is mm-hmm. something that we could have pursued, and it would be a lot different planet than the one we're looking at today. Right. Well, Guy, I appreciate the talk that you gave with me today, and I hope that we can continue to keep a relationship open because I'm interested in hearing more about your work and learning more about what you're doing. And, and maybe you want to plug your website and any social media handles, and maybe they can contact you and see what projects and things that you're up to. Sure, that's great, and I appreciate the opportunity, and I look forward to interacting with you in the future, James. Um, All of my information, contact information, Facebook page, Twitter, blah, 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 all that stuff is at GuyMcPherson.com. So that's the go-to place. It's recently revised with the help of a volunteer, so it looks a lot lot nicer than it did two weeks ago. Okay. So that's, that's the place to go to relatively efficiently find my contact information and support my minor efforts to improve the situation for life on earth. Well, I'm very grateful for, for the work that you're providing and the information that, and, and how you're providing it to people. We need more people like yourself, Guy, and I'm, I'm super, super humbled by you coming onto the show and, and giving your perspective on this. So thank you again. Thank you, James. The pleasure is all mine. Let's do it again sometime. Thanks for tuning into this episode of Ancestral Health Radio. If you like the podcast, then do me a quick favor and head over to iTunes to leave an honest rating or review of the show. This helps improve the show's ranking and visibility with other would-be hunter-gatherer gardeners just like yourself. But if you can't do that, I'll totally understand. We're still cool. But maybe you could share this episode on your favorite social media network, or at the very least, continue the conversation with myself and the tribe on the official Ancestral Health Radio Facebook page. But whatever you do, remember to check out all the resources mentioned earlier in this episode by reading the show notes at AncestralHealthRadio.com.